0: Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. Now, in this chat, we're going to keep looking at the Civil Procedure Act and, at the very least, finish the discussion of the examinable provisions in Chapter 4 and Chapter 5, And if time allows, then we'll get started on the civil procedure rules, specifically process in the court and joinder of claims and parties and then counterclaim. But if we don't get that far, then I will finish up uh, with the discussion of the Civil Procedure Act. Now, much of what we're just about to discuss is new. and, And while we touched on some of the certification requirements when we looked at ethics, We haven't looked at the rest of the provisions and so it's worth taking our time over them is point one. Point two is while the Judicial College extracts in civil procedure do uh, identify each of these provisions of the Civil Procedure Act the discussion is not as thorough as we're used to in the uh, criminal procedure and criminal law and sentencing area And there's very little on the operation of the rules itself. So we're definitely going to have to slow down a little and I'll link the common law back in once we start looking at the rules. So that may mean that we just uh, leave the discussion once we've finished the Civil Procedure Act provisions and then we'll reopen the discussion with the rules on the next occasion. Now, of course, we'd had a look for the second time on the last occasion at the overarching purpose and obligations, including ending with sanctions for contravening the overarching obligations. And that discussion, as you'll remember, went hand in glove with the discussion of barrister's ethics. So I'll now remind you, happily for you, for the very last time, that even if the discussion calls for a discussion sorry even if a question in the bar exam calls for a discussion about ethics they're so closely related that it might feel irresistible not to go on and discuss the potential uh, breach of the civil procedure act and the sanctions under the civil procedure act as well as the ethical uh, consequences That what we're just about to discuss, on the other hand, is acutely procedural. So we're right back into the thick of the procedure in the court. So we're just about to look at Chapter 4 of the Civil Procedure Act, which is headed commencement and conduct of civil proceedings, starting with Part 4.1, which expressly relates to certification requirements. And you'll understand and appreciate this is so different to the criminal procedure that we've been looking at. So Section 41 looks like it's continuing the uh, ethical and procedural discussion about certification requirements. Please note that pre-2010 there were no certification requirements, which made sense because there were no overarching obligations at that time um, in the landscape of civil procedure. So let's look at Section 41 and then we'll link that back into what we were looking at and what we are about to look at. So Section 41 creates obligations on each party personally to certify that the party has read and understood the overarching obligations and the paramount duty. And if you have no background or understanding of civil procedure and this is still new to you, happily, those expressions, overarching obligations and the paramount duty are hyperlinked in the Austley version of the Civil Procedure Act. So you can just keep refreshing your memory until it sinks in. Note that 41.1 obliges the party to certify. So this does not create obligations on the lawyers. We'll get to those in a moment. Section 41.2, the overarching obligation certification is filed with the first substantive document in the civil proceeding. So that will be in relation to the the, uh, conduct of the plaintiff, then it will be the complaint, sorry, the statement of claim. And in relation to the defence, it will be that defence. So it's the substantive document rather than the notice of appearance, if you're concerned that the first document is a procedural one rather than a substantive one. And then you can have a look at the balance of section 41 for the other procedural implications, there's an exception in 41 subsection 5 for a party who's legally represented from making the overarching obligation certification if the party is currently involved or has been involved in more than one civil proceeding and has personally made that certification in other civil proceedings in the same jurisdiction within a period specified in the rules or two years otherwise and the legal practitioner of the party so certifies. So it's a fairly uncommon exception unless you've got a particularly litigious um, client. And so usually it's the party that does so. Then we move on to section 42, which we touched on earlier, which is the proper basis certification. And this obliges the legal practitioner in the proceeding to file a proper basis certification which complies with section 42 in the following circumstances on the filing of the party's first substantive document in a civil proceeding on the filing of any subsequent substantive document in a civil proceeding which adds or substitutes a party or makes adds or substitutes a claim or cause of action or makes adds or substitutes a substantive defence or makes adds or substitutes a material allegation, denial or non-admission or fact, or makes any significant amendment to a first substantive document or subsequent substantive document. So on that basis you need a proper basis certification on that first substantive document, statement of claim or defence and there will need to be a further proper basis certification if that variation occurs in the documents at a later point in the proceeding. And if the, the civil proceeding involves allegations of fact, and of course, the significant number do, the legal practitioner making a proper basis certification certifies on the factual and legal material available. Each allegation of fact in the document has a proper basis. Each denial has a proper basis, and there's a proper basis for each non-admission in the document. In the unusual course of a civil proceeding commenced by originating motion, you'll see section 42.1b. So that is the vehicle for vesting in the documentation the proper understanding of that particular overarching obligation. Um, There's often a question asked about certification obligations in the exam but it's usually acutely procedural. The next section is section 44 so if as a matter of urgency a document is required to be filed then the proceeding may f- uh, sorry the party or legal practitioner may file the document without complying with the applicable certification provision then section 45 proceedings can be commenced or substantive documents filed without that certification so the court can't actually prevent the commencement of civil proceedings or the filing of documents merely because of a failure to comply with any certification But under section 46, a court may take into account any failure by a person to comply with any certification requirements under the Act 46a in determining costs in the proceeding, 46b in making an order about procedural obligations of parties or in making any other order that it considers appropriate. So that concludes the examinable provisions of part 2.1. Part 4.1, that is. Part 4.2 relates to case management. And some of these were old friends from pre 2010, but they're, they're, at this point, the management capacities were expanded and consolidated. And for those who don't appear in civil proceedings, please note that the proceeding may be allocated a separate judicial manager than the judge who might eventually hear the trial. So if you're interested in how a judge can act as a manager without infringing their obligations of impartiality, for instance, then it's simply a case of allocating either um, another judge or a judicial registrar to the pre-trial management of the process so that any indications that uh, are given... Don't undermine our presumptions of impartiality and neutrality that might take place at the trial. It's done in criminal proceedings as well if there is case management involved. Now, Section 47 indicates with respect to case management that without limiting any other power of a court, for the purpose of ensuring that a civil proceeding is managed and conducted in accordance with the overarching purpose, the court may give any direction or make any order it considers appropriate in the circumstances of the case and that might include c 47 subsection 2 it's including but not limited to imposing reasonable limits restrictions or conditions in respect of management or conduct of any aspect of the proceeding or the conduct of any party and a court may actively manage civil proceedings by giving directions to ensure promptness and efficiency identifying at an early stage the issues involved in the civil proceeding including those that are left unresolved after mandatory or voluntary pre-litigation processes, deciding the order in which issues in dispute are to be resolved. And you'll see the full list, um, which is uh, very helpful, if I can say, under 47.2, C, D, E and F. So, in all of those, and there's G as well, so that the manager attached to the case can weigh very heavily into um, timetabling, as well as giving substantive indications as to the matters in dispute. So, moving on to section 48, in addition to the other powers that the court may have, the court can make any order or give any direction it considers appropriate to further the overarching purpose in relation to pre-trial procedures, and of course, you can link that back to section 7 and 48 subsection 2 gives further guidance as to the types of orders that can be made and you'll see the overlap in relation to these case management processes with respect to the overarching purpose as with respect to the preceding provision section 47. Under Section 49 of this Act, the Court also has uh, capacity to give directions or make any orders it considers appropriate to further the overarching purpose in relation to the conduct of the hearing in a civil proceeding, and that can be given or made before the hearing commences or during a hearing So, for instance, the court can give any direction or make any order it considers appropriate in relation to the order in which evidence is to be given and addresses made, the order in which questions of fact are to be tried, limiting the time to be taken by a trial, including the time a party may take to present the party's case and orders with respect to witnesses, the matters that may be the subject of evidence and other evidentiary indications You can see that section 49 is an extraordinary provision if you're accustomed to practising before 2010 and there is a distinct shift from a purely adversarial environment in which the parties have that considerable latitude to, to decide the issues and the order of events at trial through to a full managerial standard where that power and discretion is vested exclusively in the power of the trial judge during a hearing, or a managerial judge before before a hearing commences, or both. And you could imagine a scenario where a court has formed a view potentially during managerial the managerial period that a particular issue is abundantly established from the pleadings and the documents that might have been disclosed either through discovery process or through um, pre-trial discussions and mentions and argument and so it might be that even if the uh, defence is refusing to concede that point the trial judge insists that defence go first in relation to the uh, calling of evidence in response to that. So section 49 confers a very very broad power in the court to manage the process and it and now I'm just uh, not just repeating myself but I'm at risk of repeating myself it stands in stark contrast to the adversarial presumption It's not necessarily employed in every single case so don't take from what I'm saying that nothing ever follows the same path that it would in uh, pre-2010 but it can be employed very effectively. So moving on to section 50 um, statement of issues the court may order or direct parties to a proceeding consult and prepare a statement of issues which identifies and summarises the key issues in dispute in the proceeding. And the court can settle the contents of that statement of issues if the parties are unable to agree on the contents of the statement. So, this can be a very, very logical and helpful a document which obliges the parties to consider exactly what is an issue and the logical steps interlinking those steps if there are interlinkages. And then it helps the trial judge to determine the order of events in which proceedings will take place in order to facilitate that just and efficient administration of justice. 50 subsection A, um, the court can use that statement of issues in a proceeding in any manner the court considers appropriate to to further the overarching purpose in relation either to pretrial or the conduct of the proceedings or both. Indeed if there's any dispute with respect to discovery of documents then the statement of issues can become the touchstone in the resolution of the party's contemplation of um, discovery as we'll discuss and also the court's adjudication of any procedures arising out of discovery glitches. My last postscript is 50A subsection 3. Don't conflate the statement of issues with pleadings. So, the statement of issues doesn't displace the function of pleadings, which we'll look at in close detail. It supplements the pleadings by focusing the party's attention, party's plural attention, on how the issues are to proceed at trial. So, pleadings is one thing, as we'll discuss, which sets out um, the law and the facts and how they're linked. It will be some matters that are more fiercely in issue than others. And the statement of issues uh, not only identifies those um, issues which are in dispute or unable to be resolved, it can include that segmentation of order of events, whether they have to all be satisfied or in the alternative, etc. Section 51 notes the consequences for contravention of orders. So this assumes that a direction has been given by a judge and if a person then contravenes such a direction or order, then the court has broad powers including dismissing the civil proceedings either generally or in relation to a particular cause of action or the whole or part of a particular claim. It can limit or strike out any claim made by the plaintiff and um, proportionately strike out or limit the defence. It can also include evidentiary consequences. And Section 52 is is one of the last of the provisions which permits a court to revoke or vary directions or orders that it has made. And Section 53 indicates, in case there was any ambiguity, that this is supplementary to any other powers that the court has to take actions of the kind referred to in the part managerially or in the process of trial, or to take any other action that the court is empowered to take in relation to a contravention of a direction given or order. And of course, nothing in the part limits the Supreme Court's inherent jurisdiction, implied jurisdiction or statutory jurisdiction, or the other court's implied jurisdiction or statutory jurisdiction. Now we move on to part 4.3 disclosure and discovery and in your notes could you please cross-reference this with order 29 of the supreme court rules so the two are intended to work collaboratively of course the act takes precedence and the rules supplement the act but you'll note that the rules um, dig into some of these details in in more detail so Uh, Looking at part 4.3, section 54, of course, indicates that discovery of documents in a civil proceeding is in accordance with the rules of the court. Okay, so far so good. Section 55 empowers the court to make any order or give any directions in relation to discovery that it considers necessary or appropriate. So they can include 55 subsection 2 orders requiring a party to make discovery to another party of documents within a class or classes or samples of document within class or classes, Other orders that can be made could even relieve a party from the obligation to provide discovery or limiting the obligation of discovery to a class or classes of documents specified in the order or documents relating to one or more specified facts or issues in dispute. And other orders that can be made including discovery occur in separate stages. And you'll see the others. It could oblige a party to itemize, index, arrange documents. It could oblige the parties to provide uh, to comply with time limits. It could relieve a party of the obligation to provide an affidavit of documents. Now this could be a very helpful provision if you are concerned that your client, whether in the bar exam or in real life, may be subject to litigation that is requiring the production of documents that um, are either not related to the proceeding or are vexatious in some way. 55A empowers a court in the event of all parties providing consent to order or direct a party to provide all documents in the party's possession or control to the other party on the basis that privilege is not waived. And there are preconditions set out in 55A2. So we'll go into the process of discovery and affidavits of documents. And of course, um, there is a, a capacity in that affidavit, affidavit of documents to carve out exceptions based on privilege. And that could raise uh, issues with compliance and practicalities. Um, but under 55A2, and assuming that the party's consenting this way and the court makes this order, The court would do so if satisfied that giving the receiving party access to those documents is not likely to give rise to any substantial prejudice to the party providing the documents and the documents can be identified and located without unreasonable cost and the documents are able to be identified by a general description or category. Now, the direction to provide all documents, as you can understand, excuses the normal obligation of inspection. So it is a deeply facilitative provision. 55B of the Civil Procedure Act allows the court to order or direct a party provide to the court an affidavit of document management Now, this is novel. It was introduced into the Civil Procedure Act in 2014 and it was uh, not necessarily a creature known to uh, civil procedure or um, conventionally to discovery prior to that time. So this affidavit of document management, uh, which is an adjunct to the affidavit of discovery, might include volume, manner of arrangement or storage type or location of discoverable documents and the party's processes of document management. So this might be a scenario where, without necessarily being able to locate all discoverable documents, if there's a class of documents or particular documents that fall within a document management policy, then that could be the subject of disclosure in this Affidavit of Document Management. 55C allows a court to order that the deponent of an Affidavit of Document Management be subject to oral examination in relation to that Affidavit of Document Management. So that oral examination and uh, would oblige the recipient of such an order to p- potentially attend for um, conducting the examination. Um, it could be that the oral examination is conducted by the court. It could be the court constituted by a judicial officer, other than the judicial officer constituting the court that made the order. could include orders as to who is to pay the costs and any other orders or directions that the court considers appropriate. 56 empowers the court to order sanctions, and this is a very, very important facilitative provision, which, as I've mentioned, is the overriding provision to which the rules relating to discovery subordinate So this is one to mark in a different colour or slightly enlarged text in your notes. Under section 56, a court may order or give any direction it considers appropriate if the court finds that there has been a failure to comply with discovery obligations or any order or direction of the court in relation to discovery or conduct intended to delay, frustrate or avoid discovery of discoverable documents. Note 56 to ABC and others. The court, if it is concerned that there has been some attempt to frustrate discovery, may make an order or give directions that proceedings for contempt of court be initiated could adjourn the civil proceeding with costs of the adjournment to be borne by the person responsible for the need to adjourn the proceeding, could make indemnity cost orders against parties or legal practitioners, and there could be either evidentiary or procedural consequences such as preventing a party from taking any step in the civil proceeding, prohibiting or limiting the use of documents in evidence, and adverse inferences arising from conduct the classic example that's given in this context, especially in light of discovery obligations and document management policies, might be the early tobacco litigation in which it was thought that certain legal practitioners or practices of legal practitioners had encouraged tobacco manufacturers who might be at risk of accusation of creating products which might convey disease, that those companies might manage documents either out of existence um, which would destroy the documents frustrating future attempts to discover in the event of future litigation or manage the documents in such a way that it's very difficult to identify particular documents so that's the subtext against which we see those document management affidavits and against which these fortified provisions for sanctions were ordered It is one thing for the Supreme Court with its inherent jurisdiction to make all sorts of orders that might prevent a party from triumphing as a result of prospectively unethical behaviour. But it's something quite different for the other courts who don't have that inherent jurisdiction. So if, for instance, the county court or the magistrate's court was put in a situation and the county court has unlimited civil jurisdiction in relation to claims for damages but if there was a tobacco case litigated in the county court where it was suggested that no discovery or limited discovery was available because of a document management policy which frustrated the plaintiff section 56 would be the mechanism of the civil procedure act which the defeated plaintiff um, might be able to pray aid. Section 57 provides parties to civil proceedings uh, with the capacity to cross-examine or seek leave to conduct an oral examination of the deponent of an affidavit of documents if there's a reasonable basis for the belief that the other party may be misinterpreting the party's discovery obligations or failing to disclose discoverable documents. And that is so, so unless the court otherwise orders under Section 57... Now, just checking my notes before we move on, make sure that I've identified what I need to. So in the next relevant groups of provisions, we see part 4.4 and summary judgment. And here we will cross-reference with order 22 of um, the civil procedure rules, which also relates to summary judgment. Order 23 will supplement that, which is the summary stay or dismissal of claim and striking out pleadings but it is now, so it is subordinate of course to the provisions of the Civil Procedure Act, but please note that if you're talking about summary judgment, you start with the Act and then move on to the rules as we will in the coming discussions. So in these provisions, sections 60 to 65 are examinable. So a plaintiff in a civil proceeding can apply to the court for summary judgment in the proceeding on the ground that a defendant's defence or part of that defence has no real prospect of success so the terminology in section 61 is rather stark so the test is whether it's no real prospect of success please note section 60 which is my second to section 61 it includes reference to a plaintiff by counterclaim and defendant by counterclaim so they will discuss it in the next discussion of course where the plaintiff sues the defendant and the response is a defence and counterclaim. The defendant then becomes the plaintiff in that counterclaim. So section 61 is broad enough to include both processes of collateral litigation. Under section 61, sorry, we've looked at section 61, we'll look at section 62, the defendant in a civil proceeding can apply to the court for summary judgment. In the proceeding on the ground, the plaintiff's claim All part of that claim has no real prospect for success. So another of the points arising from section 60 to 65 is summary judgment works both ways. Section 63 and 64 are the linchpin of these provisions. Subject to section 64, which of course we'll get to in a moment, a court can only give summary judgment if satisfied that a claim, a defence, or a counterclaim, or part of the claim, defence or counterclaim has no real prospect of success. 63, subsection two, it, this order can be made on the application of either the plaintiff or the defendant. But it could also be on the court's own motion if satisfied it's desirable to summarily dispose of the civil proceeding and the caveat is section 64 a court may order that a civil proceeding proceed to trial if the court satisfied despite there being no real prospect of success the civil proceeding should not be disposed of summarily because it's not in the interests of justice to do so or The dispute is of such a nature that only a full hearing on the merits is appropriate. And the classic teaching example of such a scenario is a novel point of law that requires re-litigation. So it it could be said that some, for instance, Aboriginal land claims, uh, even though the current common law may be adverse or the, the current legislation and the way that it's interpreted in the common law may be adverse to the plaintiff's claims, and accordingly, on the current law, there's no real prospect of success. The prospect of re agitation of the point in a superior court of appeal would be frustrated if there was that summary disposal. So that's the way that Section 64 works. So in an exam scenario, you'd be confronted with a situation where one party or other would claim that there was no real prospect of success. And if you can see that in the way that the law applies to the facts, the next vehicle for discussion is section 64 and whether the court could be urged to order that the civil proceeding proceed to trial nonetheless because of the preservation of this important point of law that may require re-agitation in the Superior Court on appeal. So the next batch of accessible provisions is part 4.5, the court's power as to costs. And this is, as I've mentioned, quite separate to the question of costs in Order 63 of the Supreme Court rules, which is not examinable. So where I refer to costs, I'm not happily not talking about um, cost implications of offers to compromise at a midway point of proceedings and so forth. Those contingencies, whilst examinable in civil procedure at university and now no longer examinable in the bar exam. Let's look at the Civil Procedure Act and the way it deals with costs for the purpose of your exam. So section 65A of the Civil Procedure Act relates to the capacity in the court to make an order directing a legal practitioner who's acting for a party to prepare a memorandum setting out estimated length of trial, estimated costs and disbursements. And in the case of a memo to be given to a party, the estimated costs that the party would have to pay to any other party if the party is unsuccessful at trial. And the memo could be given to the court, a party or both the court and any party. So this would, would even though you haven't been obliged to consider the legal obligations to it, uh, the ethical and practical obligations to explain costs, the court can separately make that order on that legal practitioner. Section 65 b indicates that the order that the court may make directing the legal practitioner prepare and give a memo setting out costs and disbursements and so forth, it can include the length of the proceeding or any part of the proceeding. So this is the facility for the court to oblige the lawyer to set out costs and length of trial. So turning to 65C and its contents are pretty self-evident because this supplements other powers that the court may have in relation to costs, which I'm mercifully restricted from having to explain to you. But the court may make any order as to costs it considers appropriate to further the overarching purpose so the, the way that section 65 works for the purpose of the exam is that this is the operative provision that allows the court to order costs as the implication for the breach of overarching obligations. 65c2 allows different awards of costs in relation to different parts of proceeding. So there might be some for instance legitimate or more legitimate parts of the proceeding before issues arose with respect to compliance with overarching obligations and you can have a look at the balance of the provisions um, in relation to fixing or capping recoverable costs including the capacity of the court to fix or cap recoverable costs in advance. So there might be, for instance, a scenario which a managerial judge uh, has indicated that certain aspects of the claim are more likely to bear fruit than others. And so there may be a signalling in relation to cost implications should the parties, uh, party or parties refuse to accept that indication and insist, insist on litigating nonetheless. And 65D allows, allows for that revocation or variation of any such order And 65 indicates that the court still has its basic powers with respect to awarding of costs and that is the tranche of provisions that are not examinable. So the last of the examinable provisions in chapter 4 relate to expert witnesses and expert evidence and this is 65F to 65Q uh, commencing in 2012. So this should uh, please dovetail back to expert evidence in civil proceedings. So we talked about expert evidence uh, in the context of evidence. And of course, that cross-referenced with uh, procedural implications in criminal proceedings, including obligations on defence to disclose. Now, the parts of expert evidence that relate to civil proceedings are linked back into their procedural consequences. 65F carries an object and that is to further the overarching purpose by enhancing case management powers of a court in relation to expert evidence in civil proceedings, restricting expert evidence to that evidence which is reasonably required to resolve a civil proceeding and emphasising the primary duty of an expert witness to the court. And in relation to that last point as you may remember the county court has a practice note uh, which emphasises the same which is An expert witness though potentially retained by a party ultimately owes its duty to the court and is not intended to be partisan in the way that the evidence is expressed. Now 65G, a party must seek direction from the court as soon as practicable if the party intends to adduce expert evidence or becomes aware that the party may adduce expert evidence at trial. And 65H, a court may give any directions it considers appropriate in relation to expert evidence in a proceeding. So assuming that the party has telegraphed that intent under 65G, the court may make an order or direction indicating that an expert report should be prepared and served in accordance with a particular timeline. Note then 65H2C, the court may direct that expert evidence be limited to specified issues and it may uh, direct that expert evidence may not be adduced re- uh, on specified issues and it could be providing for the appointment of single joint experts or court appointed experts and any other directions that it considers appropriate. Under 65i the court may then uh, procedurally direct expert witnesses to hold a conference it could be that they prepare a joint experts report or both and in relation to the conference of experts that that be held with or without the attendance of parties, legal practitioners or an independent facilitator and see uh, 65I3 in relation to the direction to prepare a joint expert report and what might be included within that direction. 65 j unless the parties to the proceeding agree or the court otherwise orders the content of a conference of experts except as referred to in a joint experts report must not be referred to at the hearing of the proceeding to which it relates so except for the joint experts report which is not considered to be without prejudice it's considered to be either informative or evidentiary The conference of experts is intended to be without prejudice. Um, So that's another step which is intended to facilitate the just and efficient resolution of the process. And you'll see how a joint experts report can be tendered, but it needs to be, uh, where it comes to matters in dispute, then the joint experts report, the parts of that report that are in dispute must be tendered only in accordance with the rules of evidence, the rules of court and the rules of practice. All right, 65K allows the court to give directions about giving of evidence, including concurrent evidence in a hot tub scenario or um, a conclave of experts by the expert witnesses. And 65K allows a broad indication of direction it considers appropriate. So see 65K2 for the sorts of directions that the court may give in relation to expert witnesses and what evidence they give and how they give evidence, and how they may, for instance, be cross-examined. 65L empowers a court to order that an expert be engaged jointly by two or more parties to a civil proceeding. So that would be the scenario of a single joint expert. 65L3, the sorts of matters that would inform the decision to engage a single joint expert Look at the complexity or importance of the issues in dispute which the joint expert might be called upon to narrate and interpret and the amount in dispute in the proceeding. And you can see the other matters which must be listed and considered. Under subsection 4, the single joint expert is to be selected by agreement if it can be procured or if the parties fail to agree by direction of the court. So have a look at those provisions. Coming to the end of this batch of provisions and then we've only got appropriate dispute resolution to go. 65M allows a court to make an order appointing an expert to assist the court and to inquire into and report on any issue in the proceeding. So for reasons involving, which might involve the court requiring either the expertise or a genuine contradictor, the court can order a court-appointed expert. And see 65M3. The types of matters um, that the court will ha- will must consider in deciding whether or not to appoint that person. So, sixty five n if a joint single joint expert is engaged or a court appointed expert is engaged the parties to the proceeding must endeavor to agree on written instructions to be provided to that person and the facts and assumption of facts on which the expert's report is to be based and 65n2 if the parties can't agree to that end the parties must seek directions from the court and the court will become involved in that process and 65o oh, unless the case falls within one of the categories discussed except by the leave of the court a party to a proceeding may not adduce evidence of any other expert witness so the uh, scenarios discussed were the single joint expert or the court appointed expert so if those two scenarios have been identified then the parties can't then adduce other expert witness and 6502 does empower the court to grant leave, but in so doing, the court must consider the matters referred to in 6502 and they're non exhaustive. Last two provisions. Under 65P, a party to a civil proceeding can apply to the court for an order that an expert witness retained by any party disclose all or specified aspects of their funding arrangement to the court and all the parties in the proceeding. And 65p2, the court may make such an order if it considers appropriate in the circumstances of the proceeding. 65p3 is an interesting one, which is the court may make an order that an expert witness disclose uh, whether the charging or payment of fees or costs is contingent in any respect on the outcome of the proceeding and, if so, the details of that arrangement. So such an order would not necessarily oblige the expert witness to disclose their fee arrangement by particular to uh, how much and what period of time that covers, But the fact of contingency might be of relevance when it it comes to cross-examination and impartiality. And 65Q retains the court's other powers in relation to case management, evidence or witnesses, and nothing in the part limits, of course, the court's other jurisdiction and powers. So that takes us to our very last examinable provisions, uh, which is Chapter 5 of the Civil Procedure Act, in relation to appropriate dispute resolution, and it won't surprise you to hear that the Civil Procedure Act favours the court's capacity to refer all or part of the process to appropriate dispute resolution. 66.1 empowers the court to make such an order. 66.2 An order may be made without consent of the parties. If the type of appropriate dispute resolution is not arbitration or reference to a special referee, expert determination or any other type of appropriate dispute resolution which results directly or indirectly in a binding outcome. So let me explain that for a moment. Let's say, for instance, what's under contemplation is mediation, which is one of the more common forms of appropriate dispute resolution. Um, The court invites an indication whether one or both of the parties agree to mediation and the response is that they do not. Now the court may still oblige the parties to participate in mediation because mediation doesn't result in a binding outcome so that the parties, even though they haven't consented to being involved in the mediation process, are not trapped by the outcome. Compare that for instance with arbitration or expert determination and those mechanisms of appropriate dispute resolution do result in a binding outcome. If the court invites an indication from the parties as to whether they'd be willing to engage in arbitration or expert determination and one party indicates their opposition, then the court is not empowered to require the parties to engage in that process. And that makes sense because it would be forcing the party to engage in a binding outcome against their will. So that's how it works. So when I opened with the comment that under the Civil Procedure Act, the judge may require the parties to engage in ADR, subject to this final caveat, which is if and only if what's contemplated by ADR is not going to lead to a binding outcome. Section 67 indicates that that discussion generally is without prejudice and in confidence so if the court orders a judicial resolution conference be conducted in relation to a civil proceeding no evidence shall be admitted at the hearing of any proceeding of anything said or done by any person in the conduct of the judicial resolution conference unless the court otherwise orders having regard to the interests of justice and fairness So in the spirit of conciliation, uh, what takes place at the Judicial Resolution Conference stays at the Judicial Resolution Conference. Section 68, a judicial officer performing duties in connection with any Judicial Resolution Conference has the same protection and immunities as a judge of the Supreme Court. So let us say that a judicial officer, whether they are a judge or potentially a judicial registrar, is the recipient of a referral for um, some form of ADR, then they are that will not give rise to evidentiary or legal consequences. And Section 69 preserves all other uh, legislative and inherent powers that the court has. All right, so... As this brings to an end, conveniently, the discussion of the examinable substantive provisions of the Civil Procedure Act in Chapter 4 and Chapter 5, this is a good place to bring to an end our second discussion of civil procedure. In the next two, possibly three discussions, we'll do a deep dive into the Supreme Court General Civil Procedure Rules of 2015. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.